than a struce. Congratulations, you've made it. I always have to eat lunch alone. I'd sure like to eat lunch with that little red-haired girl. I wonder what would happen if I walked over to her and asked her to eat lunch with me. She'd probably laugh right in my face. It's hard on a face when it gets laughed on, said the unfortunate Charlie Brown of the famous Peanuts cartoon. I also have a story of a red-haired girl, believe it or not, of course from many years ago when I was a camper, when I was in camp, summer camp, uh, in western Massachusetts called Camp Ramah. And I was in camp without any of the people I knew from home, and I thought what a great opportunity to start over and have a new reputation because I was a little bit afraid. Uh, I was a little bit hung up, maybe, on being called the N-word. So in that day and age, in the, in the 80s, you really didn't want to be called a nerd. Right, and I'll, I'll probably have a whole other episode on that. But basically, I wore glasses. Uh, I was not athletic. And I was pretty good in, in studies. Uh, but just the glasses alone, you know, pretty much if you had in those days, if you had glasses and you weren't somehow exceptionally good in sports or, uh, freakish in another way, you would definitely fit in that nerd category, which is not a cat. Nowadays, it seems like a harmless term, but it was not a category you want to be in. Uh, it was like, if you looked on television, I don't know if you ever saw that show saved by the bell. They had the, the nerds in that show were basically like some sort of subhuman. They didn't... Anyway, so let's, let's leave that for a different episode. <laughs> I went off on a tangent there. Um, here I was in summer camp. I thought I was pretty cool. Uh, and I had my... But I was worried about being a nerd. And I had my... Um, I had a vest that I would wear without... Like a snap vest I would wear without a t-shirt. And I thought, oh, I, I look so cool in this snap vest. Uh... So I think I said I was 10 years old and, um, yeah, the, the, the other boys in my dorm, they would, they would say things about girls. I think one really would talk about his fantasies with Chris, Christy Brinkley. I think you're familiar with that person. Uh, and, um, yeah, I was definitely interested in girls, uh, from a young age, not, believe it or not, not particularly smooth, but. I remember even as a small child, uh, Catwoman, and yeah, okay, let's let's save that for later. So, the red-haired girl. So once we were we were in the sort of cafeteria for the whole uh, group, and I, I think in late night talk, I had let it be known that I liked this red-haired girl, uh, and we were in the cafeteria. Girls from the other bunk were at a different table, and. At some point, the more aggressive guy in my bunk was saying, yeah, I'll, so you like her. Why don't you go tell her? I don't remember why. Was there a dance? Probably not. But I said, no, please don't. He went over there, and I sort of had mixed emotions. He went over there. He started telling her. And I said, no, don't. It's not true. I was just joking. I was just... So I, I fell into a little bit of that the trap of, I mean, I... Anyways... So I soon heard uh, the the 
the uh, through the grapevine or through the the chatter that sorry she does she thinks you're a nerd she doesn't uh, she's not interested in you uh, so sorry about that now I don't think my case was helped by my own hesitance and not I mean someone else was trying to pull the trigger and I was saying no no I'm, I was just joking it's not true um, so that doesn't you know maybe maybe there was a chance but I I don't think so but I, I think. That certainly didn't help, right? And um, late, later on, I think there was another girl who, in the camp, maybe she had heard about this, and she she appointed an emissary to contact me to say that she liked me and did I like her back. And I, I can't remember what, what was in my head, but I was sort of contemplating. I guess I didn't know who this girl was, wasn't super attracted to this but um, I said, I'm thinking about it. And then they took it, the, the emissary said, okay, well, if you're not certain, then I'll take that as a no. And she walked away. So I missed my chance to get started early on the dating game in, in summer camp at age 10. Uh, so what is this, why am I bringing up this story? Um, well, w the question is, why would it be difficult? Why did I not want to present to just confess my affection for this little redhead girl. Uh, you know, why was I, what, what did I have to lose? Uh, you know, I started with nothing. I, if she said no, I would still have nothing. Right? And why did the other girl send the emissary? Uh, I think, did I say this? Because I think, I don't know if she was, had anything for me, but she sort of was like, okay, here's a boy who's interested in this whole uh, game, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see what he does. But anyways, uh, you know, why not just go right out and say it? Uh, and the reason is because either we have a lot to lose, or we think we have a lot to lose. Um, it's rather strange, though. Right? The, you'd think, well, uh, I mean, what's what's a re reasonable example? I mean you don't fear this rejection in, in every single context, right? You don't, when you're going to a store and you say, oh, do you, you don't have bagels today, usually you're not too worried that they'll say, no, we don't have bagels today. But here, it's something that hurts. And um, I was thinking about this, and I was also thinking about this, well, this also came up to me, came up for me when I was talking to some colleagues of mine who are doing research on... Uh, the speed, they had data from speed dating and they wanted to use this data to uh, get a measure, to measure what factors caused people to, to, to tick the other person or to be interested in the other person on the other side of the table. If, you, if you're not familiar with speed dating, uh, it was invented, I forget when, 80s, originally by an Orthodox or a, a Jewish rabbi who was, you don't need to know the whole history of it. But the idea was people were shy, he wanted to get them together, and you meet, rather than lots of uh, slow dates, lots of traditional dates with uh, wine and, and dinner, etc., you meet someone for a few minutes, uh, Not I haven't actually done it, but um, you meet someone, for, I've seen it, you meet someone for a few minutes and then you go to the next and you keep going around until you've met everyone. And then at the end, you tick the boxes of the person that you would be interested in seeing again. Uh, 
my colleagues were trying to figure out what was driving things like rich people marrying rich people. Uh, We call that, uh, what do we call that? We call that homogamy, people marrying people, or dating, marrying people similar to themselves. We call it assortative mating. And they wanted to try to find out how much preferences were deciding that and how much opportunities were deciding that. And thinking specifically of ethnic uh, people dating across the ethnic lines, et cetera. And they said, oh, but actually, it's a little bit strange because they changed. We're not sure if they asked them when they... So each side of this is is presuming the straight dating. It's the male side, the female side. will tick their boxes of the people they want to date. And then you'll have a person on one side will have numbers one, four, and six ticked. Someone else on the other side has numbers two, three, and five ticked. If uh, what was the numbers I chose? I can't remember. If two ticked five and five ticked two, that's what you might call a mutual match. And that's what would be reported. Um, but they had apparently potentially changed their policy, we weren't sure, to reporting matches even if it was one way. So even if, if I had ticked someone and they hadn't ticked me, tell that person that I've ticked them and, uh, and, and then give them another chance to say, oh, this person ticks you. Maybe, maybe uh, you should consider ticking them. You might have a shot there. Uh, they had gone from one direction or the other, from that to only reporting the mutual matches. And then that made me think, oh, wait, which of these will work better? And my intuition was that, um, was that the mutual matches would work better because... People will be, if you only reveal mutual matches, I don't have to worry about the following. I tick the red-haired girl. Red-haired girl doesn't tick me. I have this feeling of being laughed, that my face has been laughed in. And maybe she tells other people if we're in a small community, and maybe that hurts me. Why would that hurt me? Well, maybe it just hurts me. I just feel bad when that happens. Is that is does that make sense? Is there an evolutionary reason for that? Well, maybe I, I have thought about this a bit. Or maybe if she tells other people, look, I made an offer to her. That means I made an offer to one person, which means I may have made an offer to many people, which means I'm not the most uh, discriminate person. What kind of person would tend to be less discriminate? Well, someone who's a bit well, the desperate person. That's what we'd say. Someone who doesn't think they have a lot of opportunities. That could hurt my reputation in the future because if I then meet someone else, make an offer to them, well, they think one thing is they might think this is a pretty desperate person. This is not a high-ranking person who has lots of opportunities. Uh, now, they may also th- there may also be something to, there may also be other things going on, and maybe I'll, we'll get to those, I'll get to that later. But for example, they might think this person makes offers to a lot of people Therefore, regardless of how good this person is, they don't really feel a particular bond with me. Sorry, train's going by. And if they don't feel a particular bond with me, maybe we're not going to have such a great relationship. It's one possibility. Another possibility is they think, I want someone who, they just think, I want someone who only wants me, who recognizes that I am the only person for them. That special aspect to it. Again, having it 
out there that I had made all of these offers, ticked all of these boxes, might not look so good for me. So getting back to the speed dating, maybe people will be more willing to tick other people in the speed dating if they realize that they are protected under what we'll call conditional anonymity. I call it in my paper that I'm getting to. Uh, if unless both of us tick each other, no, well, I could say no one learns anything, but that's not true. The red-headed girl doesn't know that I ticked her. I obviously know that I ticked the red-headed girl. So I'm not saving my... So by keeping this secret, I'm not saving... It's not saving me from learning anything that I wouldn't have already known. I can't preserve my self-image. I can't think, oh, she must have ticked me. No, because I know she didn't. But I now know... But if my anonymity is protected, at least I know that she doesn't know that I ticked her. Would that be more successful? Well, there's other things potentially going on. I alluded to some of them before. It's also possible that driven by some of those things, it's, it's, it's also possible that we're in a different environment where actually there's not just a small number of people that might have ticked me. There might be thousands that might have ticked me. Someone having gone out there and ticked me, someone having chosen me, might make me think, okay, this person sees something in the relationship. They see something here. Maybe I want to invest back in that. Or you can think of, tell other stories. Or maybe, you know, I, I want to look among the subset of people who liked me. Therefore, I don't waste my time. So if I could learn first who liked me, I, I could be better at this, more efficient at this. So not sure which would work better. Uh, now... The, the question also is, what is this net, sorry to be terminological here, what is the net consequence of this? What's better for society? Okay, suppose some matches are good, some matches are bad. What does it mean to be good or bad? Well, maybe a match generates more value than the people staying apart. Okay. Suppose it generates more value than the, these people being matched at this particular point in time, being married, whatever, dating, being in a relationship, makes them both better off than they would be otherwise. Well, then that's clear that that's generated a value, right? Now, I say then they would be otherwise. What do I mean? I mean, then they would be taking into account that maybe if they hadn't taken this opportunity they would have soon found another partner. But still, both would be better off. We certainly, that you could see that as an improvement for society. At least if, if we don't, I mean, it gets a bit more complicated if we try to take into account other people that could have matched with either of them and how it's affecting them. And maybe their match is causing some negative consequences for other people. Everyone sees them smooching and, and it's, it irritates them, dot, dot, dot. But I think that seems like a good baseline bench, benchmark. If it makes both of them better off, it's a match that's in the interest of society. Now, what if it makes one of them much better off and one of them a little bit worse off? The second person possibly could have found a partner. So possibly it would make me better off to be matched with redheaded girl. It makes her not worse off relative to being single. I mean, single at age 10 is a catastrophe, as you can imagine. But at least better off, not, not as well off as the next match she was about to find. 
Don't tell me about that. I don't want to know. But so Mace, a little works off me much, uh, much better off. Uh, is that good from a social point of view? Well, arguably. Okay. You don't make transfers within relationships, but on the whole, if we had this happening, so in other, what I mean, don't make transfers is we can't, I could, I wouldn't then pay her, you know, that, that happened in that, in that other movie from close to that era, the can't buy me love. Um, and the, the, the black remake love don't cost a thing. I think had the same sort of plot. Uh, the guy basically paid the woman to go out with her it was going to boost his reputation um absolutely terrible film which i really thought was cool at the time uh so you don't make those payments so it's not like if it can make us both better off then we say as economists whatever that that's that's welfare improving that's good we can't re we shouldn't we shouldn't prevent something that makes both people better off and we should structure society to allow such things to happen okay if it makes me much better off her slightly worse off maybe the the, the natural response would be wait a second well how are you measuring this how can i measure how much better off it makes one person than another one can I put it in some sort of other terms? And you would say, well, can person A compensate person B to make that person B, the redheaded girl, no worse off than she was before, maybe a little better off, and still person A would still remain better off being in that relationship and doing the compensation. So that's something like a potential Pareto improvement. But we may not have that in the context of, of this type of relationship. There can't be any side payments, perhaps. You still might want to foster society such that this happens quite often because, you know, I might prefer that to be in a society where where when there's one party can gain a lot and the other party loses just a little. That tends to happen uh, because sometimes I'll be the beneficiary of that and maybe on average it'll it'll balance out. So sometimes I'll be the redheaded girl and I'll I'll suffer a little bit, but sometimes I'll be me and I'll get a massive benefit over there. Okay. So that's kind of what I'm talking about with, with social cost and benefit. So suppose that, suppose now that we're thinking about what, what, think about this as how do we structure society? Okay. How do we structure the way that offers are made? Should it be like it was where one party, usually the boy, but some people say, the girl would have to make the first glance, has to put themselves out there in some way and take that risk and the risk of being, of having this mutually acknowledged and possibly more broadly acknowledged rejection having happened. Uh, and with the consequence that sometimes person A doesn't want to make the offer to person B because Yes, they would love it if there could be a match, but or it could be a marriage or, or whatever. But um, it's just not worth it once you take into account this risk of being rejected and feeling this loss of face. I call it a loss of face. Social stigma. Or not even social stigma, just a feeling of loss of face. Uh, so is that better? Or is it better what we maybe we have now? Okay, so I didn't mention it, but yeah. I mean, you're thinking of Tinder, right? So there were several precursors to Tinder. I mean, there was the idea 
at least according to Dan Ariely, claims that the matchmaker, who he calls Yenta, which isn't quite right, uh, that the matchmaker fulfilled this role in Eastern European Jewish uh, communities. Um, that they report to her and she'd report the mutual matches or he would report mutual matches. Uh, there were, in speed date, we had the speed dating thing and I imagine we had things like this previous with video dating. I'm not sure. Of course, when you're on the internet or in a large group, you have a little bit of anonymity. So maybe the loss of face doesn't hurt so much. And that's where we're moving now. So we, we have the internet. Now, even if someone saw my offer and rejected it, at least I probably won't meet them and I probably won't know their friends. But going even further than that, some of these websites, these dating websites, started offering, started a, an interface where you would only learn about cases where you had both ticked each other, where you had both said, I like this person and I had liked this person. Um, so, uh, and now with the most famous ones, of course, Tinder. And when Tinder came out, soon after that, they started trying to come out with a Tinder for everything. So that there was, there's a website even called Tinder for everything. So you could, you could um, do, do it, through, well, first through Facebook. Then there was, I see ones for uh, building relationships and mentoring partnerships. Um, there was one called Squad, where you could, you could have your squad decide if they want to meet up with another squad and form a sort of super squad. The famous Frenzy started up. F-R-I-E-N-D-S-Y, according to the founder of Frenzy, an app, I guess, or a Facebook thing, there's often, on Facebook, there's often a stigma about who friends whom first. You don't want to be the first to friend the other, putting you in a weaker position, or to have your friendship be uh, request be ignored or rejected. That would be an awful thing. So both can tick, I guess, uh, whether whom they want to be friends with. And if you both happen to be users of the incredibly popular app Frenzy and you've ticked each other, it'll suggest that there's the possibility for a safe friending to occur. Um, I have to say I had a similar idea myself for an app, but I, I don't think I have to be too worried in this one case that I missed out on the, on the lovely profits. Um, there was an app on Facebook called Bang With Friends. I'll let you imagine what that one was. I found a sign for sale on the UK eBay and it said, the printed sign, please do not ask for credit as refusal often offends. You could pay £3.49 to get that sign. Finally, let's spare a thought for the poor salesperson or telemarketer who may suffer from something called call reluctance. Quoting here, call reluctance strikes both individuals and teams gun-shy from an onslaught of rejection that avoid calling high-level decision-makers or asking for the order. The product of fear. Fear of failure. Fear of losing face. Fear of rejection or fear of making a mistake. Productivity suffers. Mm. This seems to be envir an environment people like, but is it good for society? Is it leading to better outcomes than without it? And who's benefiting from this? What which side benefits? So suppose we move from a situation where only one side, let's say males stereotypically, but maybe accurately, had to make the offer to, to a situation where both sides indicate their preferences and we just learn about mutual matches. 
does is that better for men better for women better for both is it how is it better for now what about the people at the low end of the totem pole are they totem poles that right the metaphor are they better off now or worse off what about the people at the high end of the of the i don't know why i say totem pole i feel like that's a thing totem pole are they worse off now than before turns so what if you what if the, it's the case that some people are just afraid or dislike saying no they actually perhaps because they feel compassion to the other side these were the questions i wanted to set out i set out to answer in my research and i tried really did try to try to answer this in an empirical way in other words using data or using uh, an experiment on real world situations uh, to answer questions about, yeah, who is most vulnerable to loss of face, what I call loss of face, and what are the consequences of these changes for reasonable interactions? And another thing I, I really wanted to, to know, and I still want to know, is how important is this outside of the world of dating, outside of the, uh, outside of the marriage market, as economists call it? So, for instance, uh, what about in the job market? Are people afraid to apply for jobs because they just don't want to get one more rejection and they just don't want, I don't want to sell out and apply to, you know, Amazon and then have them then reject me and know that I was willing to sell out my principles and, and will go working for them. Or, um, you know, put on a suit and, and cover up my tattoo, etc. What about, I mean, business partnerships? I can see that that being important, right? I mean, if one company offers to merge with the other company and the other company turns them down, that suggests the second company may have learned something about the first that wasn't super pretty. Certainly wouldn't want that getting out. And I think that that's been reported in the news a bit, share prices dropping. My own line of work, research, partnerships, maybe I want to write a paper with someone else in my department or outside of my department. Uh, or maybe an, a student wants to work with a, a professor or a lecturer. I, they might feel really bad if they asked, and then I said, no, sorry, I'm too busy. Right? But maybe there's a mutual benefit to be had there. Maybe, in fact, both sides actually would be better off and actually wanted to work together. Um, and if we had this anonymous exchange, an anonymous box ticking... If we had this Abraham Lincoln to urge him to offer the Confederacy a truce that would not require the emancipation of the slaves, Lincoln believed that it would harm the Union's military effort by demoralizing the 130,000 black troops fighting for the North. Now, if uh, Lincoln was sure that the Southern... Uh, leaders, rebel leader Jefferson Davis, so m would have accepted the proposal, then, uh, then it wouldn't have mattered that to him, perhaps, that it would have demoralized the, the black troops, the African-American troops fighting for the North. From his point of view, uh, you know, and, and certainly from the review of, point of view of the chairman of the Republican National Committee, Henry J. Raymond, it would have been a good thing for the war to end, even if it wasn't a good thing for, for the slaves. But he didn't know. You know. So maybe the reason he didn't make the offer because, was because he thought maybe it's going to be rejected 
Maybe I then demoralize my troops, and then uh, maybe I lose the war, or at least the war goes on much longer. There may be the opportunity for gain on the other end also. I mean, in Germany, one apparently puts on their resume, their CV, all of the offers they've received, even if they've turned them down. Uh, you know, this and this institution offered me a job, but I said no. So that clearly makes me better, a better person. That's all I want to say for now. Uh, I want to follow up on this, though, telling you about the research process I went through uh, and some of the pitfalls and, and, and what we found and, and trying to talk you through some of the research, which, which gets into a bit of game theory. But I think I can convey some, I hope I can convey some of the insight and then maybe talk a little bit about what I, what I want to do and what I think some open questions are and some open avenues to explore. And maybe ask some people, is losing face, do they fear this sort of rejection? Is it something that's influenced their lives? And has it only been in the romantic setting or has it happened in other settings too? And I also want to talk about if this is something we fear, why is it that we fear it? Is there some deep biological reason why it should be good to be afraid to tell other people of your intent and fear that, that little red-headed girl laughing in your face? Hmm. Because I was born to be blue Epilogue with Jeroen van de Ven. So you heard my Losing Face podcast, or at least the first episode. What were your comments on it? Do you have any comments on it? Um, I liked the introduction a lot. Uh, that was funny and uh, I think like captures the attention. Uh, but then at the end of the episode, um, I... I don't really know what it was about. So I, I had the feeling mm. that that um, you dwelled a lot on how to measure whether or not something is an improvement or not. And I didn't think that that would be the, like, the core of your experiments. No? Experiments, so, ex experiments or podcasts? No, I mean, so in, in the podcast, you are trying to explain a little bit what you do in your research and why you find it interesting and why it's important. In the end, uh, you talk for a long time about how to um, determine if something is an improvement or not. And we never learned the results from your experiments. Ah, because there was no experiment. That's the reason. <laughs> oh, I, I thought that you ran this experiment. I, I had an experiment in mind. I, I ran, I actually, I, I organized a um, speed dating workshop at the University wow. of Essex. And um, we had two types of forms that you could use. One of which was the, the other person would, it said that the other person will learn if you tick them on the form. And the other, and the, so one of them said that, and the other said, you'll only learn if, if they make, if they also chose you. Yeah. Right. But so I, we, I ran this in the, like sort of a basement room at the University of Essex and it was, it was rather popular. 
but it was incredibly chaotic. And ultimately, it was dimly lit. And um, I wasn't quite sure that, that people actually could see or look at the forms carefully. Okay. Um, they didn't quite follow the speed dating protocol. And at the end, we had a data collection problem. So I believe, I can't, I can't remember what happened, but I believe I wasn't able to uh, determine which, who had used which form or something <laughs> like that. Um, so, and, and then I, I tried it again in some other context. Well, I was going to try it again with um, neighbors. I had this whole plan of um, asking people if they wanted to share their personal information with their neighbors. Uh, in Colchester and I talked right. to the police and they were, you know, on board with it. There were reasons why it would be good to have uh, information sharing. And then we mapped out the neighborhoods. We had all this information. This was tied into recruitment for the lab. We were thinking planning a block design of the neighborhood. Some would get the conditional anonymity. Some would get the, um, I, I, I guess, I can't remember whether it was going to be two way revelation or just one way revelation. Um, so that was somewhat in the works, but then the PhD student who was working on it sort of, I guess he left and I left Essex. So I never followed up on that. So the paper's a, a theory paper. Okay. But also you don't, and you know, you also don't mention the results from the paper. That That's true. That's true. So I, I might a bit in the air at the end of the episode, like. Cliffhanger? The punchline was still a little <laughs> bit in the air table. At the <laughs> Cliffhanger? <laughs> okay, I'll, maybe I'll add a little bit to that. Um, and then I, I just, I thought I could talk through some some parts of the paper and what was found, but it would take, it would be a really challenging thing. It would take a long time. So I sort of thought I'll save that for another episode. Mm. 